Listen to these words from the first chapter of Colossians. Verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. I have to confess, as uh, we gather this morning to worship, and I have the responsibility and the privilege of preaching from this passage, uh, that it's overwhelming to me. I kind of approach it the same way that I approach each Easter and each Christmas, and that is, what can be said that hasn't been said? What can I say in a way that perhaps it's not been said before? And I realized some time ago that maybe it isn't so important to say it in a different way, but to simply proclaim the truth and to say this again and again and again. And I come before this passage and uh, I'm humbled by the absolute cosmic scope of what you've just heard this morning. And when we listen to these verses, it should remind us that in this section of Colossians, we're dealing with perhaps the loftiest conception of the person of Christ anywhere in the New Testament. Anywhere in the New Testament. Scholars have debated over whether Paul took a hymn that was already in existence and he sort of plugged it into this passage or whether he actually wrote this himself. And and I'm honestly not interested in that discussion. What strikes me is that as we read this, whether this was a hymn that existed that Paul adapted for his purposes or whether he wrote this himself, he is worshiping God in the words that he writes here. This is how one writer commented on these verses. Can we read this section and not feel that it flows and moves with a personal joy in believing? Paul is not discoursing. He's not discussing. He is worshiping. Upon his heart, the Lord Jesus Christ is rising and shining. In all of his majesty, his mercy, his necessity, and infinitely fair beauty. As we ponder Paul's words this morning, and as we again hear the story of the one who created the universe and everything in it, including you and me, may we allow God's Spirit to fill us, to overwhelm us with a proper sense of reverence and awe. May these words cause us to worship God, the One who is both Lord and Christ. In this preaching event, may God take my simple and my insufficient words and make them His Word to you. May He transform you and me by this Word this morning. For the past couple of weeks, we've talked about what it means to live in Christ, to place Jesus at the center of our lives rather than on the periphery of our lives, and to allow Him to determine both who we are and what we do. And if you remember last week, I talked about this idea of God's will being more about asking God, who, Lord, do you want me to be, as opposed to what, Lord, do you want me to do? This morning... I'd like us to consider what it means to give Jesus Christ first place in our lives. To put Him first, to give Him top billing, as it were. To make Him Lord. 
Now, from beginning to end, Paul's letter to the Colossians emphasizes the universal supremacy of Christ. Or, according to some older translations, his preeminence. His preeminence. It emphasizes that Jesus Christ, because of who he is and what he's done for us, is to have first place in our lives. And I believe if we truly understood what Christ has done for us, if we truly understood who he is, we would indeed give him first place, primacy in our lives. So how do we do this? How do we truly give him first place? How do we truly make Jesus Lord of our lives? It begins here. We believe the truth about him. We believe that he is both Lord of creation and we believe that he is Lord of the church. As we've seen, these Colossian believers face the philosophy that threatened their view of who Jesus was. Among other things, the philosophy claimed that Jesus was not the creator, that he couldn't possibly be the creator. And in fact, this morning as I was talking to the teachers, um, I said, what do you think when you hear that, when I say, Jesus Christ is the creator of all things? And a number of them said, you know, we've never thought about Christ in those terms. We've tended to think that Jesus is our friend, he's our savior, It's this very personal conception of God. But when you hear these words and you read about who Jesus truly is, the creator of all things, that broadens our perspective. And I think, like those teachers, most of us don't think of Christ in these broad terms. So this philosophy said that Jesus was not the creator. He couldn't possibly be the creator. It claimed that he was merely one God among many gods. And at best, he was only one spirit being, one spiritual emanation among other spiritual emanations that bridge the space between God and humankind. Simply put, this philosophy, like so many contemporary philosophies and belief systems, asserted that Jesus Christ was not God. That He was not divine in any profound sense of the word. In fact, that He was no different than the angels. And to this, Paul responds by affirming that Jesus is not merely one God among many gods, nor is he some sort of phantom or spiritual emanation or angel, but that he is, in fact, supreme. He is preeminent. He is the Lord. He's the one. He's the one. He's not only Lord of creation and Lord of the church, but he's also redeemer and reconciler of all things, of all things, In verses 15 through 18, Paul makes eight powerful and timeless assertions about who Christ is. And as we talk about these, here's what I want to encourage you to do this morning. Don't have the expectation that in the next 15 minutes we're going to wrap this up, you're going to take notes, and you're going to walk out of here and you're going to say, now I understand who Christ is. Pray that it begins the process of you understanding who Christ is in all of his fullness in all of his fullness. And here's where we begin. Verse 15, the fact that he is God. The Son is the image, Paul says, of the invisible God. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And you may be wondering how something invisible can have an image. I did. That's why I wrote it down in my notes. In Greek philosophy, an image was not considered something distinct from the object that it represented. In other words, it wasn't some sort of facsimile or reproduction. 
the image not only shared in what it revealed, but was in fact identical to what it revealed. It was the same thing. So when Paul writes these words, his audience would have heard this very differently than we do. They would have heard that the Son is identical to God. Not simply a reproduction, but identical. The Greek word for image is icon. Typically, we think of icons as little artistic renderings of Christ, the disciples, and other things. But it has other meanings. It has deeper meanings than that. And Paul uses two of them here. This is the first one. Jesus is the image or the icon of God. And as such, he is the exact copy of God. He's identical to God. And further, as an exact copy of God, Jesus Christ is a manifestation of God. That is, in Christ, God shows us His righteousness, His goodness, His wisdom, His power, and ultimately, His entire self. That's what Paul's saying here. We lose it in translation. We read it and say, oh, Jesus was the image of God. He was like God. He did some of the things that God did. But when Paul wrote these things and people heard them, it had a very different impact on them. Paul is saying that Christ, the icon of God, is indistinguishable from God. When we look at Jesus Christ, when we see the things that He does, we in fact are looking at God and seeing the things that God does. There's nothing quite so fundamental to Christian belief than this. Christ, the icon of God. He's the firstborn over all creation. Verse 15b, that's the next thing we read about him. The firstborn. Again, in our minds, when we think of firstborn, we think of birth order. And then, of course, the firstborn in birth order has all kinds of issues, right? Um, Sorry to you who are firstborn. In this context, it has nothing to do with birth order. It has to do with status and position and place of honor. Supremacy in rank is the literal translation. For example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul suggests that although Adam was the first man... Jesus has been designated firstborn. And in Psalm 89, God says this about His Son. I will also appoint Him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. His position, His rank, distinguishes Christ from all other created things. And in the context of Colossians, it particularly distinguishes Him from the angels that these Colossian believers were being encouraged to worship. His position is above all others. He's the Lord. And He is the Creator. Verses 16 and 17. For all of you English buffs, I want you to notice all of the prepositions that are used in these next two verses. Prepositions, by the way, are anything that you can do to a barrel. That's what I used to teach. In, on, to, with, for, by, upon, over, under. It doesn't use that in the text, but those are prepositions. Paul uses all these prepositions to describe Christ's relationship to the created order. And I asked the teachers this morning, go back to your 8th grade English class, which, by the way, we teach grammar in the 8th grade here, which is really stupid. We should teach it when people actually learn how to write. And I said, what is the role of a preposition? And they go, oh my gosh, you got to be kidding me. We come here to give our time to ministry, you want to know what a preposition is. Well, it makes connections, right? It makes huge connections. It says, it ties Jesus into all these things that Paul is saying about him. Paul wants to leave no doubt 
that Christ created absolutely everything in the universe, that He is intimately involved with His creation. Listen to this. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the owner. He's the owner. All things were created through Him and for Him. Verse 16. Does it sound selfish to you to hear that? God created all this for Himself? Well, first of all, He's God. So I suppose God can create whatever He wants for whatever purpose He wants. But as I thought about this, I thought, you know, it's not selfish. It should actually boost our confidence. It should give us hope. If Christ created all things, including us, for His pleasure and for His joy, this means that you and I are highly valued by God. Think about that for a minute. The God of the universe created all things and He created us. In fact, you could argue that we are the jewel of His creation. That is encouraging to me. It should be encouraging to you. It means that our lives have meaning and they have purpose. And further, if it's true, if it's really true that God created us, then why don't we live our lives completely for Him? If we could grasp something of the truth here, we would live our lives differently. He is the sustainer of all things. He is before all things. And in Him, Paul says in verse 17, all things hold together. I keep remembering this big theology professor that I had. And we were talking in one of our theology classes about creation, and he would lean over the lectern and hold his big hairy hand out. And he would say, you know, in this voice that I wish I had, you know, God holds everything in his hand. And the moment that he ceases to hold us and everything in his hand, there's nothing. This is who he is. You know, students, you believe, and we're trembling, you know, trembling in our seats. But, but that image that God holds everything in his hand, that he sustains it, that he holds it up, this is what Paul's talking about. Christ is the controlling principle, as one person says. He's the divine glue. He's the spiritual gravity that holds everything together. And he is involved in every tick of the universe. He's not some distant or impersonal deity who set it all into motion and then removed himself and said, have a good day. And you know, if there's one thing that people bring up over and over and over in conversations that I have these days, it's this issue. Yeah, I believe in a God who created. But where is that God? Where was that God in Indonesia? Where was that God on the Gulf Coast? Where was that God during the Holocaust? This God who's intimately involved in His creation. That's the question that people are asking. Jesus Christ is intimately involved in our lives and in His creation. He is, as one theologian suggests, the one who keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. That's who He is. In verse 18, Paul transitions from describing Christ as Lord of creation to describing Him as Lord of the church. This should give you some insight into the importance of the church. He is, Paul says in verse 18, the head of the church the head of the body, the church. One writer commented on this verse, and this is what he said. Christ and his people 
are viewed together as one living unit. Christ is the head, exercising control and direction. You and I are His body. We are individually His limbs and organs under His control, obeying His direction, performing His tasks. We're connected to Christ, the head of the church. The church belongs to Christ. It is truly His church. And He is truly in charge. We just don't say that. I want this to be true. I believe it's true. That He is the one who's in charge of this church and every other church. Consequently, the church is really about Christ and it's not about us. Church is really about Christ and ultimately it's not about us. The church doesn't exist ultimately to meet your needs or to meet my needs. The church exists to fulfill the redemptive purposes of God in the world. The church is a community. It's a fellowship of people to be sure. But more importantly, it is a missional community that exists for no other reason to see all creation reconciled, brought back to Christ. More on reconciliation next week. As members of this body, and I don't mean because you've signed on the dotted line, as members of the body by virtue of the fact that you are in Christ, it is your joy and your privilege and your responsibility to participate with Christ in this mission. That's why we do this. Yeah, we come to gather on Sundays and we sing and we pray and we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we hear sermons, but ultimately it's all about missional community. It's all about the focus of seeing the entire created order reconciled to God, including human beings, by the way. That's why we do this. Did you know that's what you signed up for when you said yes to Christ? That you would become a part of something much larger with a much bigger purpose than perhaps you ever, ever understood before. He's the beginning of the church. He's the author, verse 18. The church begins with Christ. It has its genesis in Him. If it weren't for Him, there would be no church. There would be no body. This whole thing is His idea. So if you have beef with the church, take it to Christ. It was His idea. Okay? If you don't like the music, talk to God. If you don't like this, no, I'm kidding. It is His idea. We participate. But it was His idea. He's the beginning of the church. And He's the firstborn. Again, that word, firstborn. He's the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. So that in everything he might be preeminent, as one translation says. This verse speaks to our hope. The promised resurrection of the dead for all of those who believe in Christ. He has gone before us. He has gone before us. The fact of Christ's resurrection guarantees that all of us who believe in Christ will also be raised to new life. His resurrection, in fact, is the source of new life for all of us who believe. We give Christ first place in our lives when we believe the truth about Him. And we know that we've recognized the truth, that we've believed the truth, not just when we understand it or grasp it intellectually or give our assent to what we hear, but when we allow it to transform us and to change us. When you really believe something, it changes your life. That's the truth. This week, will you allow the truth about Christ to begin that transformational process in you? 
Allow this stunning revelation, these words that you've heard this morning, to stretch your mind and to change you. Begin to see Jesus for who He really is. Your friend, to be sure. Your personal Savior, to be sure. But also the Creator of all things. The One who holds and sustains us and everything in this universe in the palm of His hand. Allow yourself to be dominated with thoughts of the sublime and the preeminent Christ, the one who created everything, the one who is Lord of all things. Amen.